0: What we like to do in the last session, what I'd like to do in the last session, is wrestle with um, or defend, again, in apologetics way, some key issues that are very current. And the first, one I'd like, the first issue we'd like to raise kind of is the question, where was God on 9-11? Or really, it's the question of evil and why is there suffering in this world? How does the Christian... Respond to that. How do we respond to the question? I was reading um, an author who works on campuses as um, a Christian counselor, and they ask questions every year at the dorms. What's your highest question? And these are secular campuses, and you know there used to be questions like, "What's the meaning of life?" or back in the day, why didn't the Packers win the Super Bowl, or why does God let Christians stand outside my dorm asking stupid questions? But most recently, the author was saying that the biggest question people are asking has to do with the issue of evil, the issue of suffering. How, does, how do as a Christian, do we relate to that, uh, the problem of suffering? And it's real. And If we think of September 11th, I was reading um, in a Time magazine, there was a story of a sixth grader by the name of Rodney Dickens. He was from the inner city of Washington and lived in a not-good area, but had spent his you know school years, sixth grader, so he didn't have much of a life, but trying to get good grades. And he had won a National Geographic trip to some islands off the coast of California, and he was one of three children from inner city in Washington. This was the first time he was ever on an airplane, and he was on the American Airlines flight that crashed into the Pentagon. And when you read his story of, you know, here he was, and he had dreams, and his family was so excited, where was God? Why did that happen? The other day I was talking to a friend of mine who has a friend of his who was raped as a um, as a younger woman, and her parents were not that far away, and she was crying out, uh, you know, for help, while she was being raped, and yet help didn't come. Her parents didn't hear her communicating, and so you know, she wrestles with the question: How could there be a God when terrible things like that happen? And I'm sure each one of you have had your own. Terrible experiences, or you know people who have had horrific experiences, and the, the problem of evil is a real one. And when and it's a very has a tremendous emotional power. For example, if you were to listen to Sam Harris or Christopher Hitchens, delineate the the terrible evils in this world. You know, they they talk about um, oh, where were the floods a number of years ago? All right, on the Mississippi River, there was an area that were flooded, and there were people that were trapped <coughs> in their attics praying to God and were drowned. And, <coughs> pardon me, um, during the earthquake in Haiti, many people called out to God, and a writer in the New York Times asked a question, why call out to a God who is at best indifferent and at worst vengeful? like why turn to god in a time of crisis and so you know the problem of evil is a very powerful one it's a very emotional one and when we talk about the problem of evil we need to realize that we don't want to look at it as as a philosopher or as a theologian or even as a christian we want to look at it as a human being and how do i make sense of the evil in this world and if I'm talking to somebody, if you meet somebody and they raise the question to you, well, I don't believe in God because of evil, one of the first things we need to do is, is relate to them and realize that evil is something difficult to understand or explain. But the second thing we need to realize is that it's not just the theist, it's not just the believer that has to answer the problem of evil. The problem of evil is a problem for everyone, um, In any of the scenarios that I mentioned, Rodney or my friend's friend who was raped or the people that were killed in floods or tornadoes or the earthquakes, everybody has to answer, what do I do with the problem of evil? And so one of the first things to do, again, what we were just talking about, if somebody makes a statement, we can't just let them off the hook. They can't just throw out a statement. We have to ask them for their reasons, reverse the burden of proof. They need to give us arguments for what they believe. So a question for somebody that raises the issue of evil, a question back to them is, well, how do you explain evil given your worldview or your perspective? Now, it's important to realize that the atheist, the materialist, really doesn't have a perspective. Uh, So one problem here for the atheist, is really, how do we define evil? Uh, Jeremy's got a book for one of his classes, what's the name of it, Science and Ethics? And the authors, there are scientists, and they're trying to prove that there's good and evil, there's moral issues, and they're trying to use science. Um, Sam Harris wrote the book The Moral Landscape, trying to use science to prove that there really are moral facts, so there really is something. Ultimately, evil is real, there really is something called evil or it's just like Brussels sprouts. What do I mean by that? Well, whether you like Brussels sprouts or you don't like Brussels sprouts, you don't like Brussels sprouts. Um, whether you do or you don't, that's a matter of what? They're delicious. We have two people. Uh, you like Brussels sprouts, you don't. Whether we do or we don't, is that, a, is that something objective, whether Brussels sprouts are good? Of course not. What? subjective entirely and so the question of evil is there something objective that we call evil now in the clip we had on sam harris he goes on and he talks about you know earthquakes are really not evil they're just the way they are that's the end result of his thinking now i would i would argue that the end result of an earthquake the result of the earthquake is evil when people are put to death like that that is evil yes What do you mean by decisions that people make? Like the people who chose to scheme and do 9-11. Was it wasn't necessarily a natural disaster. It was people who systematically plan- planned it. Yeah. yeah. So right. Would so that be, I guess, evil or something to bring on God? Or would it be something I chose to do? Good question. Like, I think you're jumping a little bit ahead of me as to how do we relate to the problem of evil. It's a a good point. Um, And certainly part of it is people make decisions, and we'll come to that. But right now, just, you know, why is there so much suffering? How do we answer that? Again, the first thing is not not to let the aggressor off the hook. Evil is a problem for everybody. The atheist needs to answer as well. The 20th century philosopher Bertrand Russell, who was an atheist, he said this. He wondered how anyone could talk of God if they were kneeling at the bed of a dying child. I mean, how could you talk of God in that kind of a situation? You know, here's this senseless child dying from some, some terrible disease. How could you talk of God in such a situation? Powerful illustration. A lot of rhetorical force. But we could turn it around and ask him a question. And the question could be, what are you going to say to a child that's dying? Tough luck? That's the way it goes? No happy ending? No silver lining? You know, nothing but evil? That's just the way it is? Um, Is that a response? Well, of course, that would be Russell's response. They cannot speak of the mercy of God. They can't speak of a final justice. They can't speak of of any overarching value. It just is. There is another book I was reading, which talked about a conversation between a Christian and a former Muslim who was now an atheist. And they were having a conference, and they were setting up together, and they began talking. The Muslim, let's call him Alan, just for illustration, he was born in Iran, and his father died, uh, excuse me, his uncle died through very slow cancer, very painful. And it drove him to turn away from God. I can relate to that. My dad died when I was 10 Uh, and a very sudden experience, and for years it kind of pushed me away from God as well. But uh, Alan, let's say, and Barry, just for names, they were talking back and forth, and Barry kept asking questions um, in his approach. So your father, your uncle's death caused you to not believe in the God of Islam. Is that right? Yes. And, And of course you rejected the God of Christianity and Judaism. Yes, yes, yes. And so then he asked the question, what is your... Atheistic explanation for your uncle's death. How does it help you cope? And the Muslim simply said, the ex Muslim, the atheist, said, Stuff happens, except he said it more graphically than that, that I won't say because I'm being recorded by um uh audioverse. You know, <laughs> stuff happens, you know what I'm st- more graphically, that's your best answer? The Christian asked. You know, you live in a lousy world, that's your answer, that's your comfort? So the problem of evil is a problem for us, but it's a problem for everybody. If the atheist comes around and says, well, there really isn't any evil, things just are, then what has he done? He's invalidated his argument. He's undercut his same argument. You know, here are arguing, I don't believe in God because there's evil, but really there isn't evil, it just is. So, you know. Arguing in a circle, but how do we answer it? Let me give you six biblical thoughts that help inform the Christian worldview in relation to this problem of evil. First of it, first of all, is the war in heaven. Uh, let me give you two texts: Matthew thirteen verse twenty-eight. Let's turn there. Have your Bible. Matthew thirteen verse twenty-eight. This is the parable where Jesus told about the sower, one of the parables of a sower. And, oops, sorry, I'm in the mark. My mistake. Matthew 13. Matthew. I went to Mark. <laughs> Matthew 13. Um. There's a parable that Jesus tells about a man that plants good seed in the field. And while he's sleeping, the, someone comes and sows the tares or the weeds. And when he, he describes this, verse 38, "...the field is the world, and for the good seed these are the sons of the kingdom, the tares are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age." And so Jesus talks about this parable. He talks about this man sowing the field, and he, he connects it with the devil. Now back to the parable, Matthew 13, in verse 27. It says, And the slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, what? An enemy has done this. So this parable gives us a little insight into the fact that Jesus' view was that there is an enemy, and he names the enemy later on as Satan. Revelation 12, in verse 7 through 9, it talks about the war that began where? War that began in heaven. So something that informs our worldview when we talk about suffering. Suffering is terrible. We need to realize that. Something that helps me, anyway, is to understand Okay, I'm in a battleground, and in a battleground, there are casualties, and there's a war going on, and it's a real war, so to speak. Not with, uh, there are wars with guns, but here's a battle between demonic forces and the forces of good, and this world is not as God intended. That's one of the points that, uh, as a Christian, we can bring out. A second point brings us back to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, and in Genesis 3, starting in verse 1, going through verse 9, we have the account of Adam and Eve's choice to rebel against God. And that teaches us that a lot of what we see is the consequence of the fact that we live in a fallen world. Not only is there a war going on, but we live in a fallen world, and that fallen world has consequence. Death, decay, uh, nature, Romans chapter 8, the whole creation groans, waiting for the redemption. So we live in this world that's not as God intended. We live in a war. A third point, as, as you brought out, is that there is our individual rebellion against God, our individual sin, people planning evil. A lot of what happens in this world is because individuals misuse their freedom of choice to bring evil to other people. A fourth point is very important. A lot of the evil that exists in this world is avoidable if people would live differently, uh, if Christians would live differently differently. You think of, of you know world hunger, we think of the great disparity between first world and third world. A lot of the issues in the world, a lot of the sicknesses that people bring upon themselves, a lot of what happens in this world is because not just of human planning and rebellion, but simply human choices. So, the biblical worldview, biblical perspective, we live in a battle zone. There's a war going on. There's the consequence of living in a fallen world There are the results of sinful choices that people make. There's our own individual rebellion. Something else I'd like to say is that um, just because there's no justice now does not mean there won't be justice in the future. Sometimes people say things like, you know, no amount of justice in the future or no amount of the reward in the future can ever repay the suffering I'm experiencing. Well, the question for that is how do you know? In the Bible, we don't know what heaven's going to be like. But I envision whatever sorrows we've experienced here, they will be more than adequately repaid in a future life. And all the injustice that we see will be made right. Now again, an atheistic worldview doesn't have that. Whatever is, is. And if anybody's unjust, that's just the way it's going to be. I'm I'm thankful again for a perspective that looks at something larger. You had a question, I had one more point, but go ahead. And still, I guess, comfort them and say, well, God knows what he's doing, but he allowed for this to happen to me Without getting to well, why me and all of that. Well, that brings me to my last point, which is there's a lot of things we can't answer. And if as Christians we try to think we can answer everything about suffering, we're making a big mistake. the um, question is a good one. And and that is two parts of it. One is, what about the things we don't know? We'll come to that in a moment. But the other part is, why does God allow Satan to do these things? Well, again, we have to step back. And as Seventh-day Adventists, I think we're richly privileged to have an understanding of the great controversy theme, that there are issues at play that don't only involve this world, but involve the entire universe. Questions about God's justice, God's fairness. You know, can God be worshipped for who God is. And uh, there is a limit placed on Satan's reign, that's for sure. But there also is activity that he has within the great controversy. Let's think about the book of Job for a minute, and this ties into my last point. Let's go to the book of Job. Familiar with the story, I'm sure, Job chapter 1. And Job is a righteous man, nothing wrong with him. Verse 1 says it very plainly. Later on, it says it as well. In verse 6, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan, the adversary, came among them. Notice the Lord said to Satan, Where do you come from? And Satan said to the Lord, walking to and fro, roaming on the earth, And Satan said, have you considered, have you set your heart on my servant Job? That's verse 8, chapter 1. There is none like him. Hmm? Jesus said to Satan. Satan? Did I say Job? I said Satan said to Satan. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Um, The Lord said to Satan, where did you come from? And Satan answered the Lord, saying, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there was none like him on the earth, blameless and upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. Verse 9, Satan lays out a charge. What is the charge? Job is only serving you for what you can get for it, what he can get for it. If you do something to him, he's going to curse you. We see something here in the great controversy, which for us, we begin to see a little backdrop. Now, you go through the book of Job, it's tremendously powerful. Job In chapter 3, he wishes he'd never been born. Um, Chapter 6, he curses the day of his birth. It's really, he's in anguish over these things. The reader, you and I, we know something's happening. Job's wondering, wrestling, why is all this suffering happened to me? Now you would wish that the book would end with a clear, this is why it's happening. That's not the way the book ends. How does Job end? Turn with me to Job chapter 40. Job 40, in verse 3 and 4, 5. Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth once I have spoken, I will not answer twice, and I will add nothing more. As soon as God reveals himself to Job, and Job has been asking for this all through the book, as soon as, as, as God shows himself to Job, what happens to Job's questions? They're gone. He realizes he doesn't have all the answers. It's enough for him to see God. And as Christians, I think we do have a part of our worldview that can help us talk to people about the issue of suffering. Again, it's not just a problem for us, it's a problem for, for everybody. But at least we have a framework with which to bring comfort. There will be a final judgment. God will put things right. We do live in a world that is not as it should be. Death is an enemy. It is not simply the way life is. But we also need to recognize there's a lot that we don't know. In fact, there's more that we don't know than we do know. And to simply tell somebody, you know, I really don't understand why this would happen. I don't have to have the answer, but I do know this. I do do know that God has revealed himself in Christ, and that's where I see the clearest picture of who God is. And because of that, because I know that God himself has experienced suffering, I know that God is compassionate. I know that God is loving. And that, for me, is a comfort. Just the other day I was talking to somebody about this issue. Their father had died um, when they were young, and they've been wrestling with it for years. They find it very hard to to move past that. And when we came back to the cross in our conversation, it was very helpful for them to see, okay, this is where I understand what God is like. So the problem of evil, How how can we handle it? One, recognize it's not just a problem for us, it's a problem for everybody. And if we're discussing with an atheist or somebody like that who is just being aggressive in an argument, don't let them make all the statements. Ask them, well, how would you handle the problem of evil? What's your comfort to somebody that's suffering? Secondly, we need to realize the emotional power of this issue, and we need to come with compassion. We need to try to address this not philosophically, but as a human being trying to make sense of this world. And then thirdly, as Christians, we do have a worldview that helps us make sense of that. Before we move on to our next point here, do you have any questions on this point? No questions. No easy answers. Yes, a question. Yeah. you mention something earlier? said you speak about why Christians are homophobic? Why Christians are homophobic. That's what I was going to talk about next. Is that okay? Yeah. Um, at actually, three. I'm not sure we'll get to all three sections. Again, should we believe the Bible? Um, why are Christians homophobic? Titled perhaps a little misleading. And again, the issue of suffering. But the issue of suffering, again, is a, it's a very hard issue. We need to recognize the difficulty with it. But we do have something to say that an atheist doesn't have to say. Okay. Let's um, <clears throat> talk about the issue of why are Christians so homophobic. Maybe I should ask this question. Are Christians homophobic? Yeah, that's a generality. It's a generality. Certainly not every Christian is, right? right. Of course. Uh, there's a book written, I don't know how many are familiar with it, it's called UnChristian, And pretty much the book is the results of a survey that was done by the Barner Group and they interviewed 17, maybe 15, to 25, 28-year-olds, and they asked people in this group questions about Jesus. You know, what do you think about Jesus? And Jesus got really high marks. You know, they liked Jesus. They liked Jesus' teachings. Then they asked people questions about Christians. And they found out, at least from this survey, that the vast majority of Individuals said that Christians are hypocrites, Christians are judgmental, and Christians are homophobic. Or, and these were you know very much anti-gay, and um, so here are generalities perhaps, but the results of the survey. Now it's interesting if, if we think about that they also did a survey of Christians, and they asked them certain questions. For example they asked them how frequently they would cheat on their spouse. It was really interesting that about 30% of the respondents said that they cheated on their spouse in the last year, which is about what the world says as well. My wife doesn't look that. I can see her brow furring. She's really giving me this look like... Huh. Um, don't worry, dear. <laughs> <coughs> The point of view here is that while they, it's true they are generalities, it is a not a majority of Christians, but it's a viewpoint that people have about Christianity. That Christians unfortunately don't portray themselves the way Christ did, but more often than not they portray themselves as judgmental um, in lots of different aspects. So, uh, you know, let's ask, let's talk about this. Recently in the New York, New York state, there was a decision. There are six other states in the United States that also have declared um, that, you know, people should be able to get married. There should be same-sex marriages, and that should, that's completely okay. How does the Christian community relate to that? <laughs> Your phone's going to answer the question. How does the Christian community relate to that? I don't know if you listen to Christian radio, but when that passed in New York, Christian radio was all over that issue, you know, Um, and not in a very positive fashion at all. How should the church respond to issues of same-sex attractions? Okay, there's that. We, we, don't do that well. we don't do that. We don't love the sinner and hate the sin very well, except for one case. Do you know what case that is? It's when it's us. When it's us, we love the sinner pretty well. Uh, no, and we don't hate the sin either, right? We love the sin and we love the sinner. That's I mean by that, is that we do one Yeah. Right. And we could ask the question, certain times, sorry, as you are saying, just for the recording, oftentimes we treat the people in a poor way. And we could ask that question. I I want to make it very clear here as we're going through this that I'm I'm convinced that um, homosexual activity is a sin against the Word of God. Where that same-sex attraction comes from, I think, is a complex issue. Is it entirely choice? Is it heredity is it environment i think it's a complex issue the act the action clearly is described as a sin in the word of god but how do our churches respond to individuals that are living out a lifestyle that's condemned by the word of god for example i remember uh, talking to a friend of mine a good friend of mine and we were talking about silk soy milk you like you don't like silk soy milk sorry rice stream okay Almond milk choices. Really, silk is the best. You just are not informed. (laughs) That's a preference, right? Uh, That's a difference between a preference and a principle. Preference is there's not a right or wrong. Principles are principles. But we were talking not about the taste of soy milk. We were talking about the fact that the silk soy milk has the red ribbon on it okay, for AIDS awareness. And the individual would not buy silk because of the red ribbon. And because of the red ribbon, he assumed that it was owned by homosexuals, and therefore would not buy silk soy milk. Now, um, I did a little research. Obviously, silk soy milk is not owned by homosexuals. It's, written by, it's owned by a public corporation. But the thinking there is what I'm trying to address you know, what if it had been owned by two heterosexuals living together in sin? Would we have the same reaction, or would my friend have the same reaction? Probably not. There's a much more visceral reaction against homosexual activity than there is to um, heterosexual activity, even though it is a sin as well. If someone's in a church, a woman, a girl, woman, teenager, young 20-year-old, becomes pregnant, what does the church do usually? Usually try to rally around the person, which they should. Comfort, try to help her. But if somebody says it becomes known that that person in the church is is committing same-sex activity, how do they get retreated? They get shunned. Now, the girl did the same thing, obviously, with a guy um, to become pregnant, but usually our response is very different. Why is that? It's because we begin to measure certain sins. Again, be very clear, homosexual activity is against the word of God. But our reaction to people should be consistent. Jesus was criticized for his tremendous inclusivity to those people that the religious establishment thought were beyond grace. And we should never have that experience. We should have an attitude of including people. Now, let's look here. Um, again, first of all, number one, the Word of God does consider homosexual activity inappropriate behavior. Leviticus chapter 20 is very clear. Romans chapter 1 is very clear. But the Bible also says adultery is wrong. It also says that Sabbath breaking is wrong, that disobedience to parents is wrong, and gossip is wrong. Right? They're all... On that level, in fact, if you read Leviticus 20, stoning is for homosexuality, but stoning is also for Sabbath breaking, or being disobedient to your parents. Are you like that? Um, okay. So one, you know, the Bible identifies it as a sin, but the Bible does not highlight highlight it as the sin. Yeah, it's a terrible sin, but so are many other sins as well. <clears throat> Again, the origins of homosexual behavior, same-sex attraction, are complex. And sometimes the origins are beyond the individual's control, but that, don't, that does not mean that the origins need to control. Uh, just because I might be born with a predisposition to alcoholism doesn't mean I need to become an alcoholic. Just because I'm driven in a certain way sexually does not mean that that orientation needs to control. Let's turn to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7. Um, Interesting text for us. Verses 1 and 2, 3. Matthew 7. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. Now, that's a common thing people throw out. If you're to talk about, as we just did, that homosexual behavior, same-sex attraction activity is wrong, somebody could say, well, don't judge. And they could quote this verse. Do not judge, so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard, it will be measured out to you. Why do you look at the speck That is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log, pardon me, that is in your own, excuse me, that is in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, but behold, the log is in your own? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Here's this point. It is a misapplication of this verse to say that we should not speak out. We should speak out. We should call sin by its right name. But what else should we do? Internally, right? So call sin by its right name inside. Notice what Jesus says here. What needs to be removed first? The beam or the plank that's in our eyes. It's not judging... To say that an action is harmful. That's not judgmental. That's salvific. You know, If you're driving down the road and the bridge is out, it's not judging to say the bridge is out. Um, it's not judging if we give somebody a hug who's wrestling with their sexual identity. But it is judging to ridicule somebody in that frame of mind. It is judging to use pejorative terms for individuals that are struggling with that. So what are some of the planks um, that we encounter? I've got five that I'd like to share with you. The first plank is the, the problem that we often have is that of superiority. Too often Christians come to the point where they think they are superior morally to other people. That is just plain self-righteousness. You know. I was reading an experience where there was a church, there was a large meeting of different church, different denomination, and they were having leaders come to this large gathering, and deacons were there. And one of the churches was segregated. Now, this was only a couple of years back, five, ten years ago. And one of the in one of the individual churches in this larger denomination, was segregated. In other words, African Americans couldn't worship there. It was segregated. Five or ten years ago. Yes. Um, good response. <laughs> it was part of the, you know, the point here. And and yet deacons from this denomination, from this church in the denomination, they were allowed to come to the meeting. But there was another church. Was each one of these little churches in this denomination had a lot of free autonomy. There was another church that had deacons that were practicing homosexuals. They came to the meeting. They were not permitted to come in. Now, notes the difference. One church is practicing segregation, but they can send their representatives to it. Another church has... A deacon who's living a homosexual, openly homosexual lifestyle, but they can't come. Is that an equal balance? I mean, is homosexuality worse than segregation? No. I mean, they're both wrong. And too often in Christianity, we get this superior idea that blinds us to truths. So, the second problem. Is the problem of denial. The first is superiority. The second is denial. And um, what do I mean by denial? Too often, we think that our lusts are okay, but somebody else's lusts aren't. Now, imagine this probably wouldn't happen anywhere around here, but imagine if you're with a group of people watching a football game, it probably wouldn't happen. And, um, you know, a commercial comes on. And as most commercials do, or there's the cheerleaders in a football game, and somebody makes a comment about how attractive to them the cheerleader is, that lust can be okay, But imagine a group of guys sitting around, and one of the guys has homosexual tendencies, and he sees a male that he's attracted to, and he makes a comment. There's a whole totally different internal reaction, isn't there? You can see it on your faces. Well, one is, yeah, you know, that's guys talking. The other is, ooh, that's denial. Sinful lusts are sinful lusts. And to think that my lust is okay and someone else's lust isn't is wrong. Another plank that we have, another problem with this issue, is, is very basically it's hatred. And that is that there's this underlying anger that the same-sex movement, the homosexual movement, is making strides for acceptance in society. And a lot of Christians feel just angry and talk with hatred about that. Now, we can be engaged in the political conversation, we can lobby for laws, but if the, quote, other side is winning that, those, that battle, anger and hatred should not be our response. Remember, we believe in the separation of church and state. Okay? <laughs> Now, I think the government has responsibility to make laws, and whether it should be okay or not okay for individuals to be of the same sex to be married—that's a decision that needs to be made in the courts. I have a moral opinion about that, but a political opinion is something else. Another plank that Christians often have is the fear factor. Uh, I've talked to lots of individuals, and well, I you know I don't know any homosexuals. What's going to happen if I'm around one as if every homosexual is a predator? Now, there are predators, but there are also predators that, that uh, look for victims of the opposite sex as well, and we need to be aware of those. Another problem for us is the, just the basic coldness of heart that we have as Christians. Think of individuals suffering from AIDS. It's very easy to simply say, hey, well, that was their choice, and we drop it. That's not the compassionate venue that Jesus had. And so, you know, these are some of the issues that I think contribute to Christians acting, or being perceived at least, as being homophobic or judgmental. We appear superior. We act in a way of denial There's this level of hatred sometimes. Sometimes we're afraid. And sometimes our hearts are just plain cold. Does anybody have any questions on that aspect? Really? I'd like to share something here, that behavior does not have to define you. It does not have to define somebody else. We're defined... By being children of God, and our behavior can change, right? Our behavior need not define us. Christ is the one; being children of God can define us. Who are we to sit in condemnation on somebody else? Now, you probably remember what was it about a year ago? There was a young man by the name of Tyler Clementi. Uh, he was a violinist. He was a very accomplished violinist. Everybody who heard him play, the violin, was deeply touched by his music. Um, Unfortunately, his roommate played a very horrific joke on him. The roommate opened up his computer and had the cam on and was filming in the room. And that night, Tyler had a friend, a male friend, over, and the two of them were engaging in sexual activities. His roommate posted that online. So it came out that Tyler was a homosexual engaging in activity. And his activities were broadcast online, Facebook and other things. The way Tyler handled that was to go to the George Washington Bridge and jump off and kill himself. Typed a note on Facebook, told his friends I'm sorry, and then killed himself. So the question I have for us is, if we knew that that had been online, and then Tyler came to church that day, how would we respond? How would we react? Would we evidence the compassion of Jesus? Would we go up to him, put his arm around, our arm around and say, "I'm really sorry, I heard about this. I want you to know, brother, that I love you." Or would we be a bit standoffish? How would you respond? in your own heart, how would I respond? Would he have encountered the compassion of Christ or the judgmentalism of the Pharisees? So an important question for us, how do we relate in situations like this? This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse,